Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is Josh Summers, and I'm very glad you're here today. Okay, this episode is a Dharma talk in which I reflect on the meditative instructions I give in the practice called yin meditation. And what I try to do in this talk is give a kind of a broad overview of the various phases that someone would go through in the course of a meditative practice and and path. Um, I try to describe these phases very broadly as as shifts in one's experience and perception along the way. And I try to link these changes or these phases that people go through to the core instructions that I give or the core principles of the instructions that I give. And those core principles include the perch, receptivity, and choice. And I try to talk about how each of those is very helpful in the beginning and how each of them, the perch, receptivity, and choice, develop and ripen and mature over the course of a a long-term practice. So I hope you find these reflections helpful. Uh, I hope they they will illuminate your own understanding of whatever practice you're working with, or if if you're, it might help you understand, better understand yin meditation as I conceive it. Before I give you the talk though, at the end of this week, so on April 17th, that's a Saturday, I'll be giving a two-hour workshop on yin yoga and the art of qi cultivation. And qi is our vital life force. And in, in, in a Taoist practice as well as in yogic practices, there's great emphasis placed on strengthening, circulating, and harmonizing our vital energy. And I'll be using the tools of yin yoga practice, that's very gentle postural work in in yoga poses, combined with specific instructions and suggestions around breathing um, practice to help optimize uh, sort of the mechanical substratum of the fascia through which our chi flows and optimizing the the biochemistry of our blood so that one manifestation of qi, oxygen, is uh, best delivered to the cells. So this workshop is suitable for all levels, all ages, all abilities. Um, and if you have interest in, in sort of strengthening, doing simple, having simple practices that will help really help you optimize your own energetic state, do check it out. There was a link for that in the show notes. And now, without further ado, I give you today's Dharma talk on meditative process and experience. Okay, I wanted to offer a few reflections around practice itself, you know, the kind of the the process involved in practice or the... the, um, the the things that start to develop in our practice over time, and uh, at the outset, I, I just want to say there's there's many different ways of talking about meditative practice, or you could you could say that there's different lines of development, there's different lines of our being that develop over the course of a practice, and one line of development we could loosely define as our relational line. How do we how how do we relate to what we're experiencing? And, and what capacity do we have in that relationship? So, you know, real simply, we usually start out practice 
seeing that the way, the default way that we're relating to most of our experience is one of reactivity, some manifestation of reactivity. And that's what we've been really exploring with this um, ongoing series of reflections on the hindrances. But just seeing you know, at the beginning how much of our, 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 our default relationship to our experience in life is fueled, filtered, uh, con- conditioned by the reactive habit patterns of mind. But another line of development, and that's the one, this is the one that I'm going to speak more about tonight. Another line of development is the perceptual. You know, in addition to seeing how we're relating to things, we're also developing a clearer lens or a a more polished, um, undistorted lens through which we can see our experience, both ourselves and the experience that we're in. We can see things more clearly. And um, I want to sort of unpack some of the the, the stages, if you will, the stages of perceptual development that I think unfold in a variety of different uh, forms of meditative practice. And to help explore these different phases, um, I want to utilize a metaphor. Um, and, and this metaphor may be uh, bent quite a bit to make it fit my purposes here. But the metaphor is loosely the metaphor of a party and and i would like you to suppose that you or you go to a house party if you remember the days of going to a house parties where friends have a dinner party or some sort of gathering of friends at someone's home um <clears throat> when you arrive there's usually a room where most of the action occurs now that, that in many house parties that i've been to that tends to be the kitchen people kind of clump or gather around, cluster around the food and the drink. Um, but for the metaphor's purpose here, I'm going to suggest that there's a room in the house, so we will say it's the living room, where when you enter the living room, there's going to be an opportunity within the living room for you particularly that um, when you access this opportunity, it has a potential, um, and, and likely will, radically transform your life. It will change how you see yourself and how you see your place in the universe in a way. So the the presumption here is that there's something special and unique about this particular room at this house. And in the metaphor, that room is, I'm just going to cut to the chase and, 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 and give a spoiler alert here. The room that I'm referring to is the proverbial present moment, that there's something about present moment experience, which affords people who learn to appreciate it and learn to understand it affords uh, beings the opportunity to come to a new kind of understanding about themselves and their place in the world. That only can occur in the present. And that's why you've heard umpteen teachers, whether they're like the big gurus or there's the the little people in the the world, but there's anyone that's teaching meditation yoga always sort of talks about getting into the present moment. This is why it's the the ubiquitous teaching. There is something uniquely special about that experience of of present momentness. But in my uh, encounter with with, uh, many different practices, uh, my feeling is that if people try to get into the present moment too quickly, it's analogous to you know, the host of the party saying, hey, go sit in the living room. <laughs> you know, you get kind of ordered in there. And now maybe there's nobody in the living room. So you feel kind of lonely and weird and bored in there. 
or maybe there's too many people in there and you, you, you're more of an introvert. You don't, you don't enjoy being around so many people. You want a little quieter space to hang out with and chill in. So there may be a way that, and I think many people find this, that when they try to get into the present moment or try to get into this particular room of experience, there's a lot of uh, static and resistance and struggle. So as I conceive of meditative practice, and, and when I try to give voice to instructions around meditative practice, one of the first things I try to do is make entering that room as gentle and as relaxed and as easygoing as possible. And one way of kind of setting that, um, that, 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 that opportunity up is to suggest you don't have to stay in the room very long. You know, go go into the room for a little bit, but then feel free to wander around, check out the rest of the house, go outside if you need to, take a walk around the block at any time. Meaning your mind is free to wander into the past or future, other rooms of experience, other dimensions of experience, and come back to present momentness uh, kind of when you decide to or when you feel it would be helpful or when you see it happen spontaneously. So a large part of what I try to emphasize, particularly for beginners, and then and then particularly even with more advanced people, if they're struggling with higher stages of, of insight, um, is to really make sure that this, this way of arriving in the present is as gentle and as benign and as light as possible. Because anything beyond that energy makes it challenging, makes makes anything beyond uh, becoming present difficult and challenging. So let's say you've been at the party for a while, you've gone into the living room, it didn't really smell right. There was, a, there was a Yankee candle burning, and then when no one was looking, you kind of put the Yankee candle out, and then you, you let the air, the room air out for a bit, you went for a walk around the block, but you come back in, the room smells better now, there's a couple of people sitting in one corner, there's a nice comfortable chair for you over there, you sit down in the chair, and now you're feeling like you're comfortable in the room. So now you've gotten some familiarity, what it's like to be in the room, what it's like to be in the present. From here, in the meditative journey, I would suggest that particularly in the perceptual line of meditation, now we can really start to look at the objects in the room. This is the kind of thing that people start to check out first. If you're at a party, you, you're sitting in a room more or less by yourself, you're going to look around. What is, what's in the room? And you might strike up conversations with yourself or with somebody near you about the things in the room. Hey, look at that giraffe carving i wonder where that came from is that a south african giraffe or a... <laughs> you know you can get into all sorts of detail and curiosity around the objects in the room and there's a there's a stage in meditation development and perceptual meditative development where um, at least particularly in buddhism i would say um, there's a great deal of instruction given around becoming better able to name and identify the objects of your experience. And, and, and you know, and you might not believe me at this moment, but doing it in meditation is actually easier than the objects in the room. Because in meditative, in meditation, the objects that we're looking at are only six, and there's only three that really arise with great frequency. But in a room, there's all sorts of things. Like even in, the, in this relatively sparsely furnished office that I'm in. There's way more than six things that I could name. But in terms of meditation, we're talking about sensations. Those are, that's one uh, domain of experience that arises. There's sounds. 
and there's thoughts. Those are the big three. And then feelings are usually a hybridization of, of, of thought and feeling together. Um, but there may be sights as well. There may be smells and there may be tastes. Those are less common. So the big three tend to be sensations, thoughts, and sounds. And for a period of time, and this, this might be a period of time in, in a meditation, it might be a period of time in like over, over several weeks in your practice, you might really emphasize developing your capacity for recognizing the objects of your experience, what's in the room of the present moment. And, and if you're taking the mindfulness training with me, you know that one of the ways that um, this is achieved in, in a certain style of Buddhist practice, namely coming from Myanmar, um, there's a technique of, of mental labeling or noting where you just softly, silently label whatever object of experience you're most aware of moment by moment. And, and, and to most uh, folks, when they hear this instruction, they sound like this is a really weird style of meditation. I assure you, it's one of the most profound meditative technologies that has been invented in the last few hundred years. I, I think there's, it's, it's safe to say that, make that statement. Um, so you would know, sensation, itching, touching, hearing, thinking, itching, pressure, feeling. Just note whatever's arising moment to moment as it occurs, very softly in a relaxed way, getting familiar with objects. And a lot of styles of meditation, particularly when they say they describe themselves as mindfulness of something, are doing just that. You're bringing mindfulness to objects of experience. So mindfulness of breath is a development of awareness vis-a-vis -vis the breath. Or mindfulness of the body is a development of mindfulness vis-a-vis -vis awareness, developing awareness vis-a-vis -vis the objects or sensations of the body. Now, a lot of people... In my opinion, and this is, you take, take this with a grain of salt, but in, in my opinion, a lot of people get fixated at this stage of practice. They can get, like, the, the, this is where the, their, their sense of themselves as the meditator getting better can take root. Because there, there, there can be a way that you, you, you can really get good at capturing objects of attention. It's like you become a better, better fisherman or a meditative fisher person. <laughs> catching objects of experience. But um, many of the traditions don't end there. They say, once you get familiar with the objects of your experience, so you're sitting in the room, now you're really clear about the paintings, the, the mirrors and the, the furniture and all the people that are in the room. From there, then the meditation instructions usually shift to encourage the meditator to now pick up and notice the space or the context within which these objects are appearing. So, you know, if I were to look around myself right now, it's the empty space around the computer, around the light, around the window. It's the empty space within the room that allows all of these objects to be known. Very briefly, as, as Ajahn Sumedha says, if you fill in the, the room with, with concrete, there's no perception of objects anymore. There's just black, there's blank black. So. In a very real way, this, this space is the, the subtle dimension or the subtle feature of our experience that allows things to be known. And we start to, start to contemplate uh, in a very soft, relaxed way, contemplate the nature or the relationship between objects and space. And, and picking up on previous talks I've given, I would say there's a very much of a yin-yang relationship. 
you don't get objects without space. You don't get space without objects. They, they, they are inseparable polarities that come together. So um, once one can, can sort of recognize the space of the experience, and this is, this is what I was trying to point to last week when I gave the, uh, the, the nada sound instruction or the sound of inner listening, listening to the inner, inner sound, uh, because that sound uh, is a kind of a point, a pointer to this spacious dimension of mind that is not coming and going relative to all the other objects of experience. Like it, so when you start to recognize that sound, you notice the sound is stable relative to say the car coming and going or the honking of, of, of sound coming and going, or um, maybe the, the, the thought of whether you're getting it or not, or you like it or not, like those thoughts come and go before the, the, the stable, more permanent experience of the sound. So that 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 the sound it becomes a acoustic analog to the quality of space in the room, or quality of space in your experience. So this is this is where things can get a little slippery at first, and 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 um, where noticing objects is relatively easy and, and can give a sense of confidence. Starting to notice space can feel nebulous, confusing, vague, not so sure you're getting it. It can build bringing in a sense of uncertainty or. or just unclarity. So, you know, I try to emphasize this. We've weave this this theme of noticing space in from time to time, so that over time, I'm hoping that you'll be able to start to really access it and and um, and and find the more effortless release and relaxation within that noticing. But from there, and this is where it's going to sound a like, kind of deep end mystical slash weird, <laughs> depending on your. Um, your orientation at the moment, um, from from noticing space and the relationship between space and objects, um, we can then say you start to the meditator starts to explore the nature of the the relationship between themselves, the objects of experience, and the space. So this three three part relationship between self, object, and space. And again, not to uh, not to pull back from the punchline, but the punchline is that you are like the, the capital U, or should I say the capital Y U, like the big U, the big S self, is the space, objects, and everything. There's no separation whatsoever. And that's sort of like that's the big mind that awakens to the truth of things. So this is we've now left the little sense of our personality long behind. That, that's that's like a little blip within the, this immense sense of infinite being that that we awaken to. Um, it doesn't mean the little self disappears. It's just that it's the little self gets radically recontextualized by the the knowledge that is given from unity consciousness. When consciousness is unified, is experienced as unified, is awakened as unified with all experiences. So from that point, you know, you, you could say going back to the party, it's like you learn, you, you gain that knowledge while in the room, while practicing in the present moment. But from that moment on, it doesn't matter if you're in the room anymore. You don't have to be, you don't have to be in the chair. Like that knowledge um, is more or less um, with you wherever you go, whether you're out in the street, whether you're in the in the in the house or not in the house in the car. That knowledge of unity with all things um, is 
is revealed to have been there all along in a way. So the reason I'm, I'm saying this is because at the, at the deep end of the, of the spectrum of, of that unity experience, um, which it, it's worth saying, we all have it already right now. Like we're already 100% plugged in to unity consciousness. We're just not aware of it. Like there's a mechanism within us that forgets that. So um, this is where the voicing or the, the articulation of instructions are tricky because uh, from the perspective of unity consciousness, there's nothing you can do to act, to get into that state. There's nothing you can do to make it, to create it or to make it happen. In a certain sense, any seeking of that state, any seeking of it, looking for it, denies the truth of your access to it already. So any attempt to get anywhere is going to reinforce an ongoing futile search. And a, and a lot of the teachers that went, I've been sort of studying this lately, but when, when Eastern mysticism came to Western shores, you know, initially the teaching was that direct, like, what is the core teaching? You know, and, and, and someone might say that I am that to quote Nisargatara Maharaj or all is one or all is the awakened mind. They give this absolute teaching from that, absolute perspective but not many people got it including myself <laughs> you know so these teachers they had to create what they would say would be sort of developmental stages or developmental practices that in the best sense soften you up so that this big insight of no practice nowhere to go nothing to do nothing to attain is realized so I'm going to remind you now of, of the instructions that I tend to give to new folks. Um, and I hope you might start to see how these instructions can take someone from the very beginning of not sure if they're even comfortable in entering that room and going from being in the room, getting into the room to realizing there's nothing to do at all. Realizing you already are a hundred percent free as you are. So the first instruction I, I, I've been giving lately for the last few years is that of the perch to, to uh, give people in the beginning something to place their attention on. Now, a lot of systems use the breath um, for reasons I'll, I'll maybe go into at another time. I find what, that instruction can often uh, create unnecessary tension for people because they create this divide in their experience between being with the breath and when they're not with the breath. And they feel that they're somehow struggling and, and not doing the practice well enough or that there's something deficient in them when they're not able to sustain their attention on the breath. It can make people very anxious too. So I've been uh, increasingly um, more, uh, more fond, I should say, of just finding something very simple and tactile in one's experience to, to use as a perch. 
So the simple experience of or simple contact of hands resting on the lap or the body sitting against a, a chair is just enough of a neutral experience to rest the attention on if and when that feels indicated, if and when that feels helpful. Um, so, you know, going into the room, using the room metaphor, when you go into a room, you may, some people like to stand, there are people like to stand at parties that makes them feel safe. So standing could be the perch, you know, in this analogy, or some people like to sit in the chair or sitting on the arm of the couch. So, so that like, sitting somewhere could be the perch or leaning against the wall. So there's multiple ways that you can be in that room, the room of the present moment, just like there's multiple ways of accessing the present moment in meditation. Accessing the present moment can achieve, be achieved through the body. It can be achieved through listening. It can be achieved through looking. It can be achieved through moving. It can be achieved through sitting. There's many ways of accessing present momentness. So I encourage multiple uh, explorations of those routes in and find one that is, is reasonably functional for you. Last week, uh, in the last session, I gave the, the, the perch of the nada sound. Um, that one is wonderful for ways that we can probably look into later. Um, it's a wonderful uh, tool or perch to use. But for, for, for people that are new, um, if they don't hear it, then they they can easily start to feel frustrated. Like, well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I hear that 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 spiritual sound in my ear that he was talking about? And maybe my chances of getting enlightened are dashed now because I can't hear the sound. It really doesn't matter if you hear the sound or if you're just using your hands. Both work fine, um, but the sound can, I think, can have a few extra uh, functional roles that it, within it that. Um, play out in the, in the, in the other stages of, of the, the process that I described. So once you have a perch, one way of looking at the perch is the perch practice rather than anchor, but the perch practice is a seed. It's planting seeds of stillness. So every time you rest on the perch relative to the things you were with before the perch, there's something calm, still grounding about perch experience, which is why we use it. It's not that we become still by staying on the perch. It's just that the, the stillness, the, the relative stillness of being on the perch approximates and intimates at the kind of stillness that emerges when we realize stillness is the ground of our being. So just like you know, your mind is fully liberated already, like the, the, the awareness fact that your mind is already fully liberated. The awareness itself is absolutely still. The knowing function of the mind is already still. So that's what starts to get cultivated in the second aspect of my instruction. So we have a perch that we can let the attention rest to. The next thing I usually say is from that perch, allow your mind to be receptive to your experience as it is. Not trying to minimize or, or control your experience or shape what happens or what comes up, but just to let your mind be open and receiving of whatever emerges. And that <clears throat> that receptivity is a seed that that grows into an experience of of, of sensing awareness. Because one of the things that awareness does is it doesn't push or pull or have preferences. The egoic mind of liking and disliking has all those preferences, but the awareness that shines through the ego and just rec recognizes what's happening 
does not have preference, just like a, an empty mirror doesn't care whether you know it's a book or a newspaper or a person that 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 reflect that reflects uh, through it. Awareness just allows whatever to come, allows everything to go that goes. So it's it's as we shift into a receptive state is what I'm trying to say here. It's as we sh- shift into receptivity, we are in a sense, uh, tiptoeing into this dimension of our of awareness in our being. We're tiptoeing or settling back into awareness itself. And then the third instruction that I often give is that when we're uh, receptive, sometimes our mind will explore also like sort of lots of things from our future or the past. Um, it might explore things in altered states or absorbed states. It might explore something to do with work. It might explore something interpersonally. There's all sorts of things we explore and have permission to explore. The difference here is that um, a lot of times meditation instructions will try to tell you what to do specifically with that experience. They'll say, oh, if you're wandering, if you're lost in thought and you recognize it, then just without judgment, let it go and come back to your perch. And so that they 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 kind of often will 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 lay out the roadmap in that kind of a way, like don't don't get lost in in your thinking. In other words, and in my opinion, that 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 can create a little bit too much of a claustrophobic pressure to be in the room of present moments. What I was saying earlier. So I like to leave that door the doors and windows open. You can you can leave and come back. You can leave and come back. So that's part of the choice. You have the choice to be with something or you, or, and to let something go on, but you also have the choice to turn away and redirect your attention, like bringing your attention back to the perch. This one it may not make as much sense right now, but with the choice and an exercising choice, I see this ripening ultimately, this, this seed of choice ultimately ripens into an experience of surrender. Because these three features of perch, receptivity, and choice are all part of the same process. And with time, they start to to mature into a unified experience that is still awake and surrendered. Meaning there's there's nothing to do anymore. There's There's no more, there's nothing to seek. There's nothing to change. You abide in the 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 as the as tibetans say the great perfection that is already here now if you hear something like the great perfection already here um, and you're all socially uh, concerned uh, concerned about social justice issues or, or environmental issues or anything like that you might say well there's a whole lot here that is not perfectly great already like there's a lot here that needs to be fixed and that's all true that all the difficulty, all the evil that we see in the world, all of that arises within this unified field of, of inseparable polarities. But the idea is that once we wake up to our unified experience with this, these conditions, we're in a much better, wiser, more compassionate place to engage with them now. So perch, having a perch to work with, receptivity and choice, are kind of the key features of this orientation to meditation. Um, and with time, I'm hoping you'll find that more and more you start to settle in a relaxed way into the present. 
And in subsequent talks and, and, and sessions, we can talk about looking at the objects of experience more and also exploring the space around those objects. Some of you are already there and I encourage you to work with wherever you're at right now. But um, maybe the final thing I'll say is I'm teaching, I'm setting these instructions up with the, the final uh, end of this polarity in mind, getting to the point that there's nothing to do. There's no practice to do. There's no meditator anymore. There's no attainments. There's just the great perfection that already always was and is and will be. So I'm teaching uh, in that way in the sense that in the final deep end of this journey, the, the, the doership of the ego is dissolved completely. The, 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 the meditator that is trying to get the practice, be a good meditator, dissolves or is, um, is relieved of its duties, you, should, you could say. Um, and in order for that to happen, I'm trying to give the meditator as few, of thing, few things to do in the beginning as possible. So like picking out a perch, relaxing on the perch, being receptive, having a few choices about what you do, that's just enough structure, in my, my hope, it's just enough structure so that it doesn't create a, the, 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 a really hard, rigid role of a meditator that has to do these things correctly, like the meditator that has to be receptive or the meditator that has to come back to the perch all the time. These are just enough footholds in the process to let the practice unfold in a very relaxed, gentle way. And I've already gone over my time that I budgeted for tonight. But that, in a nutshell, is sort of how I see this, this initial practice that I give uh, leading one onward through these various stages of coming to sharpen and deepen one's perception of their experience, not just of what's happening, but the relationship between what's happening and the person having the experience and starting to see really explore that, that connection. Okay, thank you again for listening to today's talk. I hope uh, the reflections I offer are clarifying and helpful to you in your own practice of either yin yoga or meditation. And uh, once again, if you would like to join me and Terry practicing weekly in the meditation sessions, the yin yoga sessions, the yang yoga, the qigong, any of our weekly classes through live participation or through the recordings that are available in our online library the archive of all our classes all that uh, is available to you as a member in our online sangha which you can find out more information about at our website joshsummers.net forward slash sangha that's s-a-n-g-h-a which just simply means a, a community of like-minded practitioners so we do hope you'll consider joining us and until next time which will be later this week, I'll be releasing another interview. Uh, this one's from the archives. I recorded this over a year ago, but have been holding on to it. This is going to be my conversation with author Jenny O'Dell on her amazing book, How to Do Nothing. So that's coming out later this week. And until then, be very well, and take good care and stay safe.